long ago in a small town in northeastern Germany lived a beloved barber. He was well known by pretty much the entire village. In fact, uh, people simply just called him Master Peter because he was the one that cut everybody's hair and gave everybody a shave and uh, he was just well known and well loved in this community. And one particular day, Master Peter was giving a haircut as he normally would, and he noticed a man enter into his barber shop. And he recognized the man because he was the greatest, most wanted outlaw in all of Germany in that time. And he watched as the man sat and got in line and Eventually, the man comes up to the chair and sits in front of Master Peter for a haircut and a shave. Master Peter knew that this outlaw, was there was a great bounty that had been issued for anyone that could capture or kill this enemy of the throne. And Master Peter had right in front of him, with a razor in his hand, this outlaw. But Master Peter was not going to do anything to harm this man because this outlaw was one of Peter's heroes. This outlaw was none other than the great reformer Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who had lit the the match that started the great fire of the, the Protestant Reformation, who had stood up against the Pope and against councils and against the, the teaching of the church and said, here I stand, I can do no other. This very Martin Luther sat in a chair in front of Master Peter the barber. I want you to just imagine for a moment that you were in a similar situation and you had sitting in front of you as a captive audience for 20, 30 minutes, however long, one of your heroes, a celebrity of some sort, maybe an athlete or a a, a famous preacher or a famous author or a movie star. Somebody's in front of you for 30 minutes and you can talk to them about whatever you want. You can ask them any sort of question that you want. What would you talk about? Well, Master Peter the Barber asked Martin Luther a simple question. Will you teach me how to pray? Will you teach me how to pray? Martin Luther sat in the chair and thought about the question for a little bit, and then he said to Peter the barber, I'm going to write you a book. Martin Luther, who was a a translator of God's Word, who was a professor who was a pastor, who was a husband and a father and a discipler of of many preacher boys that would spend time in his home. Martin Luther, who had all these different writing projects that he was working on, decided to write a simple little book for Peter the Barber called A Simple Way to Pray. But my, my hero in that story isn't Martin Luther, but Peter the Barber. Because I I think I would be tempted to ask something different. I would be tempted to want some different advice about some other situation. But Peter goes right to one of the most important things in life. And that is learning how to pray. I want to want to pray like Peter wanted to pray in that story. 
And that's my desire for each of you in this room this morning. I want you to want to pray. I want us to want to pray. If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We are walking through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and we're, we're pumping the brakes a little bit as we look at Jesus' teaching on prayer. Jesus has been talking to his disciples about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And now, at this point in his sermon, he gives some of the most well-known teaching in all of Scripture. And perhaps, maybe, some of the most neglected teaching in all of Scripture. And so my, my heart and, and hope for us as we walk through this together is that we would, in our own souls and hearts and minds, we would grow a, an affection, a desire, a delight in prayer. This morning, I want to show you, with God's help, four simple truths from Jesus' teaching in the beginning of this prayer that should strengthen our desire to pray. But before, before we do that, I want to just kind of zoom out for a moment and, and look at the prayer as a whole. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, this passage is, is often called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, perhaps a better name for it might be the, the model prayer or the Christian's prayer or the disciple's prayer because there is a sense in which Jesus probably wouldn't have prayed this prayer, at least not exactly like this. So for example, if you look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, where Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, it's right and good for you to ask God the Father to forgive you of your sins. But if you know Jesus and you know his story, you know that Jesus was not guilty of sin. And so Jesus never would have prayed to the Father for forgiveness. And him was no stain of sin. And so this is a prayer that Jesus is giving to his disciples to teach us how to pray. But more important than what we call this prayer is what the prayer actually teaches us. Notice the prayer structure. It begins with an introduction. Our Father in heaven. What follows are six petitions or prayer requests. The first is, hallowed be your name. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The second, your kingdom come. Number three, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Number four, give us this day our daily bread. Number five, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And after the prayer in verses 14 and 15, Jesus teaches us a little bit more about why we must forgive. And the sixth petition is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In some older translations, like the King James Version, which many of you perhaps have memorized, there is also a conclusion to this prayer that says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Your Bible might reference this in a footnote. We'll talk more about that as we move ahead. 
But notice also there's a pattern to these six petitions. The first three are all about God. What are we praying for? We're praying for His name to be hallowed. We're praying for His kingdom to come. We're praying for His will to be done. And the second three petitions are about us. Our needs, our forgiveness, our holiness. So like I said, we're, we're going to take the next few weeks as a church to slow down and zoom in on this prayer. Selfishly, I'm doing this because I want to grow in my own prayer life. But I want the same, beloved, for you. For you to grow in your desire and delight in prayer. So today, I want to show you four simple truths from the first few lines of this prayer that should strengthen your desire to pray. Four simple truths. Number one, God is Father. God is Father. Jesus begins, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Now, by the way, before we zoom in a little bit to this particular truth, notice Jesus says, pray then like this. He doesn't say, pray this, as if the, the, the remedy to a struggling prayer life is simply to memorize these words and say them over and over again. You can do that, but Jesus is asking you to, to use these petitions as, as kind of like an, an outline or a, or a skeleton or a model for your prayers. And he begins by saying, here's who you're addressing, our Father in heaven. I don't know about you, but I think we are so numb to that reality that it doesn't really affect us the way that it should that Jesus teaches us to call God Father. Think about all the different titles throughout the scriptures, right? Good titles that we could use for God. He, he is Yahweh. He's the Lord. He's God. He's almighty. He's the most high. He's the king of the universe. He's master. He's creator. He's ruler. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus says, call him Father. You, you see the, the intimacy in what Jesus is inviting us to. This emphasis would not have been lost on Jesus' disciples. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you will find occasionally that God is called Father in the Old Testament Scriptures. And yet, there's a massive shift in the New. One preacher says that the Old Testament calls God Father 15 times. In the New Testament, God is called Father 245 times. Yeah, the New Testament's a much smaller portion of Scripture compared to all the books that you have in the Old. Why is there this major shift? It's not like God is, is changing. It's not like He all of a sudden becomes Father in the New Testament. What was, what was present in seed form in the Old Testament is now blossoming in the New Testament. So what's happening? Why here in the coming of Jesus are we invited to call God Father over and over and over again? What's happening? At the beginning of John's gospel, I think John gives us a clue. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. John 1, verses 11 to 13. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want you to notice something in this scripture. Calling God Father is a right that nobody is born with. If you're in this room, you were not born with the right to call God Father. By birth, the scripture says, you are children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. By birth, Jesus says in John 8, 44, you are children of your father, the devil. Naturally, every single person, you are born with two parents, wrath and Satan. You cannot call God father naturally. But notice what John chapter 1 says. To all who believed in his name, to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, friend, you were not born a Christian. You have not always been a Christian. You might have always been in a Christian home or always involved in a Christian church, but you were not born a Christian. You were born a a a child of, of Satan and of wrath. But if you believe in this Jesus, if you receive him, you are given the right to call God, the God that that created galaxies, the God that, that holds the ocean like a drop in the palm of his hand, the God who can shape the hearts of kings and rulers, you can call him Father. Not because you did anything to earn that, but because you trusted in Christ. You believed in his name. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Listen to me, brother, sister, friend. Here's what the gospel teaches. This is the message of the scriptures. By nature, all of us are sinful. By nature, by birth, every single person, no matter how religious you are, you deserve the wrath of God. You cannot call God Father simply because you want to. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, and to rise from the dead so that whoever puts their trust in Jesus can now call God Father. That is glorious good news. Let me ask you, friend, this morning, have you put your faith in this Jesus? Have you trusted in his work or are you hoping that somehow or another your works are going to be good enough? Can I just plead with you for just a moment, whether you're in this room or you're watching online, listen to me. The best your works will do is damn you in the end. That's the best they'll do. Your best 
day with the best religious activity you've ever done apart from Christ is only enough to cut you off from him forever. But if you call upon Jesus, you can become a child of God. That's what we invite you to. Have you done that? Now listen, until you genuinely trust this Jesus, this prayer is never for you, no matter how well behaved you are. It's never for you. I don't say that to be mean to you. I don't say that to make you feel bad. But simply to say, this is a Christian's prayer. It's a prayer for those who have been adopted into the family of God. D.A. Carson says that in the early church, the early church, they were very, very serious about not letting unbelievers pray the Lord's Prayer. In fact, we call it guarding the the communion table. When we have communion, we guard the table, and that will say, if you're not a Christian, don't take the bread, don't take the cup. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, don't take communion. They did the same thing with the Lord's Prayer. They guarded it. They said, don't you pray that prayer. He's not your father until you trust Christ. But here's the good news. He wants you to trust Christ. He invites you to him. He's saying to you now, even your rebellion, if you're hearing all that and you say, well, if he doesn't want me, I don't want him. He wants you. He invites you to himself. And he says, trust me. Will you call him father? You can only do that through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're in this room and your faith is not in Christ, here's the prayer for you. Another prayer that Jesus talks about. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, would you show me mercy? I deserve wrath. Show me mercy. I deserve hell. Show me grace. Would you save me? That's the prayer for you. If you're in this room and you've, if you've not cried out to God for mercy, if you would just talk to the person who invited you here, head to the white flag after the service, there'll be somebody that will want to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This prayer, the Lord's prayer, is for those who belong to Christ. It's never for you until you come to Christ. But listen to me, Christian, Christian in this room, this prayer is always for you if you belong to Christ, even on your worst day. Listen to me. God does not invite you to call him father when you're behaving. He's, he does not invite you to call him father when you've got all your ducks in a row religiously, when you know all the theological vocabulary and you've done all your good works and you put enough money in the offering. He doesn't say, do those things, then call me father. No, if you belong to Christ, this prayer is always for you. That is good and glorious news. A good dad is sometimes disappointed in the behavior of his children. It's true. But a good dad will never say to his kids, stop calling me dad, even on their worst day. Now, maybe you're in this room. You say, this is really hard for me to hear, to process, because I don't have a good dad. I didn't have a good dad. Uh, My dad was abusive. My dad was harsh. My dad was emotionally distant. Maybe that's you. And you say, this is really hard for me. I was talking to my own father, who is a good dad. I was talking to my own father last week as I was preparing for this sermon. 
because my dad did not have a good dad. He said he only remembers a handful of times growing up when his father wasn't drunk. He never remembers receiving a hug from his dad. Even when they were little, he remembers his dad saying, don't call me daddy. You know, none of of my kids are going to call me daddy. Didn't want intimacy from his children. Didn't want affection from his children. The first time my dad remembers hearing his father say to him, I love you, was on his deathbed. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's your relationship with your dad. Listen to me. If that's you, let me just tell you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's what you had growing up. I'm so sorry. But listen to me. Do not judge your heavenly father by your earthly father. Listen to me, Christian, listen to me. We are constantly tempted and sometimes even taught to interpret, interpret our, our, our God through the lens of our experiences. It should be the other way around. You start with what God says about himself and you believe that. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's painful. But trust him. He invites you. He pleads you to call him Father. If you are in Christ, the Father can no sooner reject you as his child than he can reject the sacrifice that Jesus made for you on the cross. He will not reject you if you belong to him through Christ. Now, this probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. The Bible clearly and consistently refers to God as Father. Yet there's a push among progressives to update the language and sometimes refer to God as Mother. Uh, The Bible does sometimes describe God with maternal characteristics. So uh, Isaiah 49 Verse 15 says that God is like a nursing mother that won't forget her baby. God won't forget his people. Or Jesus in Matthew 23 says that he's like a mother hen that gathers her chicks under his wings. God longs to gather his people. We shouldn't be embarrassed about that language. And yet, the Bible never calls God mother, and neither should we. Listen to me. It is the height of arrogance to come to the Bible and say, I don't like the way that God refers to himself. I'm going to update that to make me more comfortable. We're not going to do that at PBC. Please don't do that in your life. God invites you to call him Father. Now, notice as well, this is, the text says, our Father in heaven. Literally, the text says, in the heavens. The idea here is not so much the place where God lives, but the the power that he has. By saying our father in the heavens, Jesus is saying he is a father, he's intimate, he loves you, he wants a relationship with you, and yet he's immensely, gloriously big and powerful. That's what he's saying. It reminded me of a scene from what is arguably the greatest Batman film of all time, the Lego Batman movie. I'm not even joking, it's so good. Young Dick Grayson is adopted by Bruce Wayne, the the millionaire billionaire. And one day, Dick is exploring Bruce Wayne's mansion. And he discovers Bruce Wayne's alter ego, the Batman, in the Batcave. 
And he, he walks up to Batman and he says, oh my goodness, does, does Batman live in Bruce Wayne's basement? And Batman says, no, Bruce Wayne lives in Batman's attic. The, the point being, to be adopted into a family is great, but to be adopted into a family with a guy with that kind of power, that's amazing. Listen, our father is in the heavens. He's your father, Christian. On your worst day and your worst moment, he is yours, and he is not ashamed to call himself your father. That should make you want to pray. Should make me want to pray. A second truth that should strengthen our desire to pray. We are children. God is father. Number two, we are children. This is not explicitly mentioned in the text, but it's a clear implication of Jesus' teaching here. If God is our father, then it stands to reason, then we, we are his children, right? It might seem basic and obvious and really not worth mentioning, but I, I'm convinced this is incredibly important. Think for a second with me about how kids pray. Think about how kids pray. I think kids kind of naturally, especially as the Spirit's working in their heart, they kind of just naturally bring their whole souls to God. And as we grow into adulthood, we get cynical and we begin to think, well, God doesn't need that. He didn't have time for that. Let me give you a couple examples. I remember a couple years ago, we were going to an Easter egg hunt somewhere and uh, one of our kids prayed before the Easter egg hunt that she would find pink eggs, right? Now, as an adult, you think, how silly. God doesn't, God doesn't have time to care about pink eggs. Does he care about you? Yes is right, whoever said that, that's right. He does. He, here's what we think as adults, as mature Christians. We think that we need to edit and censor our prayers and then bring them to God. I remember another time, actually just recently, one of our kids has been praying for a mom that we know that she would be more faithful to discipline her children. Now, she's not talking about any moms in this room, so don't worry, somebody else. But one of our kids is praying, God, please help so-and-so to discipline their children rightly. Right? Like, we think of it, we like, you're not supposed to pray about that. Aren't we? Aren't we? Or Ezekiel, who's learning his English and learning to pray and learning to talk, he often includes in his prayer Jason's house. No explanation, we don't know. Jason's house. Now, God cares about Jason's house. Why? Because he cares about who lives there. Listen to me. Here's the point. We think, we think as we grow in our understanding, as we grow in our suffering, we think that we have to censor and edit ourselves before we come to God. But Jesus invites us regularly to approach God like children. Consider Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. At that time, the apostles came, to, or the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And you know what they want. Peter's thinking, he's going to say me, guys, watch. You know, it's going to be me. And Jesus surprises everybody. And he calls to him a child nearby. And he put the child in the midst of the group. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I, I don't think Jesus is saying that children are naturally humble. Uh, we still have a video of Jonah when he was two years old saying over and over again, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best. You know, I don't think kids are naturally humble. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think there is a type of humility that's more natural for children than adults. Children more naturally are okay being dependent, right? Your kids, those of you that have young kids, they ask you for stuff all the time. It's like, get it yourself, kid. You're 15, go get it. They're okay being dependent. Mom, dad, will you blah, 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 whatever. Kids are more naturally okay depending upon someone else. And Jesus invites you to approach the Father knowing that you need him. Listen to me. Here's what we want to do. Here's what I want to do. I want to do everything I can, fix it myself, and then that's when I pray, when I figure out I can't. And Jesus says, come to your Father depending on him. You need him. Hasn't this sermon reminded us over and over again how much we need him? Jesus says, you have to be meek to inherit the earth. In other words, don't grab for power. Don't do it your way. If you're not going to do it your way, how are you going to do it? You're going to need his help, aren't you? Jesus says, don't retaliate against your enemies. Love them. Seek their well-being. Seek their good. If you do that, you're, how are you going to take care of yourself? How are you going to meet your needs? You're going to realize really quickly, if you start to obey the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find yourself really, really needing help. And Jesus says, come to your Father and pray. We are children that need our Father. I'm convinced, I'm convinced of this. Listen to this, church. The first step towards really growing in your prayer life is not discipline. It's dependence. The first step to growing in your prayer life is not discipline. It's dependence. Discipline is well and good. It's, it has its place. But you want to grow in prayer, then you need to get to the point where you really need him. It, it, it's shocking to me how quickly I am and, and all of us are as Christians, if we're honest, to try to avoid suffering. Suffering hurts. It's painful. Whether it's the suffering of, of losing a job and you don't know how you're going to provide financially or you're, you're stuck, you feel stuck in a relationship that you don't know how to fix or you're trying to parent a child that seems so cold and wayward or whatever it is, some sort of physical, emotional, relational suffering in that moment, you realize something. You can't do this and you pray. Could it be the very thing that we're trying to run from? 
is the thing that God intends in his mercy to put in your life so that you see your need of him. We are children. We need him. And we have a father who delights in hearing from his children. Number three. Number three. We'll grow in our desire to pray as we grow in our recognition that we are family. We are family. Notice again, verse 9. Who's Father in heaven? Our Father in heaven. Not my Father in heaven, although he is your Father, individual Christian. The text says, our Father in heaven. When Ezekiel came into the Butoh family, he didn't get a vote, by the way, but he came into a family with not just a mom and a dad, but four rowdy siblings. He got a family. He got a brother and sisters. So too, Christian, when you were adopted into the family of God, whether you voted for it or not, you got adopted into a family brothers and sisters. And, and notice this prayer. Notice this prayer. All throughout this prayer, there is corporate language. This is significant because if you've been tracking through the Sermon on the Mount with us, notice Jesus says, you, individual, singular Christian, fight the temptation to lust. You, individual, be faithful to your wife. You, individual Christian, tell the truth. You, individual Christian, love your enemies. And then he gets to this prayer and all of the language shifts. It's all corporate. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is not a single personal pronoun in the singular in this entire prayer. All of it is plural. You are adopted into the family of God alongside brothers and sisters and it is not enough for you to say, give me this day my daily bread. Jesus invites you to pray for the daily bread that your sister needs and that your brother needs. Jesus invites you to pray not only for your own forgiveness, but to the forgiveness of your sister, brother. Jesus invites you to pray not only that God would protect you from evil and deliver you from temptation, but that he would help your brother and sister in the same. Now, we could take this prayer too far. We could take this idea too far and say that private prayer isn't important or necessary. That's not true. We've already seen that in the Sermon on the Mount just a few verses earlier. Jesus talks about going and praying in private. There's a place for private prayer. But I think most of us are in danger of not taking this far enough. In other words, if we're honest, most of us are in danger of making prayer too individualistic. Could it be one of the reasons why we're so bad at prayer is because most of the time we pray alone? Could it be that God intends for you to be praying with others? Incidentally, when Martin Luther wrote that book, A Simple Way to Pray, 
one of the first things he says to Master Peter the barber is when you're struggling in your prayer life, go to church. Go to church. In those days, in small, tight-knit community in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, God's people would gather regularly throughout the week. You know, nobody lives really far away. They've got times during the day where they're gathering for prayer. And so there would have been an opportunity, multiple opportunities for, throughout the week for Master Peter to go with God's people and pray. It's a little harder for us in our kind of disconnected world. But what would it look like for you, Christian, to create opportunities in your week where you can gather with some Christians to pray? Maybe that's praying as a family, more than just a simple table grace before a meal. Maybe that's when you have opportunity to have someone over and, and be hospitable, that you conclude the time together and pray for each other. Maybe it's intentionally getting a, a small group of, of Christians together and say, hey, can we just get together and pray some of you are retired and you don't have a lot of obligations during the week. Maybe it's just getting a group together for the sole purpose of praying. Maybe it's devoting more time in your fellowship groups for prayer. But Jesus intends that God's people pray together. What would it look like for you, Christian? But let me challenge you in this. Even when you pray by yourself, bring God's people into the prayer with you. Do you know the people around you enough to know what needs they have in their lives today? Whose daily bread in this church are you praying for besides your own? Who in this church are you praying that God would deliver from evil besides your own family? I don't say that to make you feel guilty, but to implore you, to challenge you, to get to know the people around you and to know what they need in prayer and to actually bring them with you just in spirit and your times of prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Finally, we'll grow in our desire to pray so we grow in our awareness that God is holy. That's the first petition. Matthew 6, verse 9. Hallowed be your name. When Jesus says hollow, he's not talking about hollowing something out like carving out the, the inside of a pumpkin for a jack-o'-lantern. It's hollow. It's an old English word, and it means to honor something as holy. So Jesus is saying, May your name be honored as holy, Father. Now, by holy, I would encourage you, don't think necessarily about God's perfection or his moral rightness, his righteousness. I mean, he is all of those things. But when the Bible calls God holy, usually what it means is that God is other. He's unique. He's different from us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and Jesus wants us to pray that God's name would be recognized as holy. It is holy. He's not asking us to pray that God's name becomes holy, but that others will recognize it as holy. And when we pray for God's name to be hollow, what do we mean by God's 
name. His name stands for who he is. So in Psalm 20, verse 7, the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The psalmist is not saying that we're trusting in the combination of letters that spells God's name. When he says we trust in the name of the Lord our God, what he's saying is we trust in God. We trust in Him. We trust in His person and His being and His character and His goodness. A theologian, Herman Bovink, says this about the name of God. There's an intimate link between God and His name. According to Scripture, this link is not accidental or arbitrary, but forged by God Himself. We do not name God. He names Himself. Summed up in His name, therefore, is His honor, His fame, His excellencies, His entire revelation, His very being. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, we're saying, God, we want the world to recognize how great You are. I want myself to recognize how great you are. You are incredible and glorious and amazing and kind and strong and good. And I want people to see you as you really are. That's what we're praying when we say, hallowed be your name. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Let me challenge you in this. This Petition, this first request, is not simply one request among the six. This request is the foundation for everything that follows. Why do we want God's kingdom to come? So that his name will be honored. Because when Christ returns and his kingdom is consummated, or when his kingdom is more perfectly seen in your life and in our church and in our country and in our world, when that happens, who gets glory? Christ does. Why do we pray for his will to be done? Why do we want God's will to be done in our life? Why do we pray, God, please work your will in my life? Because when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, who gets the glory? God does. God does. His name is hollowed. Why do you pray for your needs to be met? You say, give us our, this day our daily bread. Why do we ask God to meet our needs? Not simply so we can be more comfortable, I hope. Not simply so that we don't have to worry about this or that, but so that we might bring glory to Christ. So that we might honor Him and display His excellencies and His worth. Why do we want our sins to be forgiven? Because God is glorified when sinners are forgiven. Why do we want to be delivered from evil? Because when we live holy lives, we shine a spotlight on our Father who is in heaven. When we understand this petition, when we truly understand this, hallowed be your name. Let your name be recognized as holy. It affects what we ask for. We should care about the world. This morning we prayed for Dominica. We should care about Dominica, even if you never go there or never meet someone from there. You should care about it. Why? Because God created it. And people there reflect his image. And he's holy.
And he wants to be worshipped by people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Should care about sex trafficking. We prayed about that this morning. Why should you care about that? Because it degrades the image of God and the life of another human being. It, it absolutely devastates what God says is good. You should care about that. It should affect how we pray. Why should we pray for our own church or our sister church like Fox Hill Road? Because we want God's name to be hallowed there. We want him to get glory there and here and everywhere in between. This should affect how we pray. When we really understand this, it should affect how we approach God. On the one hand, we approach him with reverence because he's holy. But on the other hand, we approach him with boldness because he's our father and he's welcomed us through the blood of Jesus. Understanding this petition should help you. It should affect the way you respond to how God chooses to answer your prayers. Listen to me, I know that there are some in this room that feel like or maybe have given up on prayer because you feel like God has said no to too many requests. But if your driving prayer underneath all of the surface prayers, your driving prayer is that God's name would be recognized as holy, then when he says no to this or that thing, you can trust him that by saying no, God is choosing to do what will most glorify him, even if it hurts in the short term. You see how this petition can transform the way you think about prayer. Nearly every major Christian denomination since the Reformation has incorporated the Lord's Prayer into their catechisms. But I don't think anybody captured it better than Martin Luther in his 1529 small catechism. He says this about this line from the Lord's Prayer. With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children, so that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. I love the language in that catechism. There's so many other good ones, but Luther captures the tenderness and the intimacy. Luther was a dad with a house full of kids. Luther lost his beloved 13-year-old daughter, Magdalena, and he felt as if his heart would explode with grief. He knew the love that a father has for his child. And he says, listen, God is inviting you, tenderly inviting you to come to him as your dear father. That is my prayer for you, Christian, that you would believe that God is your dear Father who loves you and that you would want to talk to him. And my prayer for you in this room, unbeliever, if there be any, is that you would cry out to the God who invites you to call him Father and confess and trust in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, you are so, so good to us. I think of the, the final words of Martin Luther before he breathed his last breath. 
when he said, we are beggars, this is true. We are. We, we have nothing in our hands to impress you with. We have nothing to bring you, to pay you back. All we have are empty hands. Thank you for the promise that empty hands get filled. May your people in this room learn to love you as their dear, dear father.